One of the things, uh, the great privileges, and I mean it, it's a great privilege to be able to, um, for some reason, you know, God allowed me to, to do what I get to do, and I am so thankful because it is my favorite thing to do. Maybe just a little less, uh, Ed, if we can turn it in just a smidgen. Testing one, two, testing, that's good. I think so, yep. It, it is a great privilege for me to be able to do what I get to do, and um, and. You know, there's, a, there's an old phrase in the Old Testament that says, you can't, um, don't muzzle the ox while he treads out the corn. And I like that, and I'm that ox. Because I get to tread the corn, and then I get to feed it to you, in a sense, you know. And so, um, I get to be the first partaker of this, and it is such a, a privilege, and it changes me, and it's changing me, little by little, day by day, week by week, it's changing me, and I'm so glad that God is doing that, because Folks, let's just face it. We are all on a journey together, and I mean it. We're together. Not one of us is further ahead, and you know we're all on this journey together. And it's important that we see each other as uh, as equals in Christ, because uh, there's not one man or woman here more important than another. Because we are all. Uh, if you're a believer, you are God's children. If you're if you're a believer in Christ, you are His child, and I'm I'm His child too. And so tonight we're going to look at uh, the remainder of chapter 18 of 2 Kings, and Lord willing, we'll finish, uh, we'll even uh, do a quick read through uh, chapter 19. We won't spend a great deal of time there, and then we'll take communion together uh, this evening. But just to kind of recap what has happened up to this point, remember in previous chapters, just the chapter prior to this, um, the king of Assyria had come and taken the northern ten tribes uh, captive uh, to Assyria. And that happened, we know, in 722 B.C. Those, those dates will probably be forever etched in your memory as they are mine. And, uh, and, and God took the, the northern ten tribes, remember, because of their idolatry. And you would think that the southern two tribes would have learned the lesson, but they, they didn't. And for 116 years, 116 years, God gave Judah, meaning Benjamin and, and, and Judah, where Jerusalem was the capital, gave them 116 years to learn the lesson from their northern neighbors, their own brethren. But they would not, and, uh, and, and I'm so thankful how God and the kings of Judah, that most, many of them were evil kings, but every now and then there was this king that would just rise to the stars, and he was just a great, great um, influence on the children of Israel. And the closer they got, Judah and Benjamin, the closer they got to completely falling into a place where God says, okay, now I am going to bring judgment upon my own people. And he was going to bring Babylon, remember, in 606 BC. And it hasn't happened yet, but we're going to read about it as we get further into 2 Kings, that Jerusalem itself is going to fall. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in 606 BC and, and uh, took many of them captive. Uh, Daniel was one of them. Uh, Ezekiel was another one. Uh, and took them along with the three lads, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their Babylonian names, but their Hebrew names, uh, I'm not going to tell you because I forgot what they are. But he took them all captive, and he took the really best. Nebuchadnezzar took the best back to Babylon. And he did that in three different deportments, three different waves of bringing them in and out of Jerusalem into Babylon. And then for 20 years, he laid siege to Jerusalem until finally in 586 B.C., he had enough, and he destroyed the temple, literally just razed it to the ground. And many of the Jews died, and many of them went into captivity, into Babylon, where they were for 70 years. And then God brought them back into, into the land, as his promise was, through the hands of Ezra and Nehemiah. But um, So Judah didn't learn the lesson. And remember, in, in chapter 18, we looked at the beginning of it. Um, it was talking about how Hosea, the son of Elah, he was king of Israel, and that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. And isn't that interesting that Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings of Judah, and yet his father was a complete reprobate. 
His father Ahaz was a horrible example as a king, a horrible example as a father. And how is it that a man like Hezekiah can, for 25 years, he was co-regent with his father, meaning he, was, he, was co- he, he ruled with him but in a subordinate position. How is it that a man of this character, so unlike his father, totally blowing away all of the stereotypes of, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree or like father, like son. Well, Hezekiah was completely different than Ahaz, his father. And, Ahaz, excuse me, and Hezekiah, here now in the, in the critical time in Judah's history, When they were just plummeting and plummeting and plummeting, all of a sudden God raises up Hezekiah. What a great and awesome man. And just lifts them right up out of their mess that they're in. And God was so pleased with him. And God blessed them as a nation all the time that he was king. And Hezekiah didn't stop there. He removed all the high places, all the places they used to worship instead of at the altar in Jerusalem. They worshiped all these other places. He removed even them. Nobody had the guts to do that prior to Hezekiah. But he was the one that says, we're, we're eradicating all of this false idolatrous worship. We're going to get back to basics. And that, folks, is a clue for us today. Never think that there has to be something new. The old paths. What, is, what does it tell us in Isaiah? Search, I think it's in Jeremiah. Or Jeremiah um, it says, search for the old paths and walk in them. The old paths are those paths that have been well-worn by saints that have gone before us. They're effective paths. They are good paths. They're leading to obedience. And they're leading to righteousness. Those are the kind of things that you and I ought to pay attention to. There's nothing wrong with the old paths. The older I get, the more I'm happy that there is an old path laid before me. I don't need a new path. I don't need something new revealed to me. And neither should you. Don't crave something new. Just learn the basics. Learn what's here. This is enough. Trust me. This is going to take you a lifetime. Letting God sanctify you. It's going to take a lifetime until your last breath. You're still going to be working on it. But it's not because of your performance that gets you to heaven, right? We know that. It's sanctification. Well, it's sanctification through Christ. He's the one who saved us, and it's through his blood that I'm accepted, I'm forgiven, and I know I'm going to heaven because of what he did on the cross, nothing of myself. But as a result of his Holy Spirit in me, he's sanctifying us, isn't he? And that's a daily thing that's happening, slowly, slowly conforming us to his image. Little obedience here, a little obedience here, a little putting away of that, a little doing better and better. And and it's not perfection. We're not going to be perfected on this side of the cross. We are sinners saved by grace and we're being conformed and it's going to take a lifetime. And just enjoy the ride and let him do it in you, right? Let him do it in you. And so Hezekiah comes on the scene, and I love this. And God, in these first eight verses of chapter 18, he extols this man. And he says, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, verse 3, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. We looked at that last week. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him, notice this, There's only one other person in history that has had this commendation, and it's Josiah. We're going to read about him shortly in the next few weeks. But notice this commendation that God gives to Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Do you hear that? Yes. This man was on fire. He was a young man who was just, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to stay on course. And he did. And he had a little bit of an, uh, of an ego problem as, you know, later on in his life, but God corrected him. And God still gave him that commendation, knowing very well that he was gonna, there was going to be a period in his life where he was going to be full of himself a little bit. And God was able to clip his wings a little bit. And aren't you glad that he does that? Have you ever felt a little bit uh, bigger than your britches? Have you ever felt like you were just a little bit better than the average guy? A little bit better than so-and-so. And the Lord has a way of lovingly bringing you down and saying, Hey, stop looking at people. Stop comparing yourselves with one another. Compare yourself to me and then you'll shut up. <laughs> right? It shuts my mouth and I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm just happy that I'm in the beloved, aren't you? 
Aren't you happy that you're in Christ tonight? Just to be loved by him. And you're going to be loved by him for eternity. Isn't that awesome to think about? For eternity, folks, it'll never, ever end. Say that with me. It will never, ever end. One more time. It will never, ever end. Yes. Hallelujah. It'll never end. So the worst that you're going to see on this planet is what's going to happen between now and the end. That's the worst it's going to be for you if you're a believer. That's the worst you're going to see. And for the believer, it's not going to be so bad because we're not going to be here for the great tribulation. We're going to be raptured before them. We believe that through the word of God. But notice, he goes on in verses, the first eight verses, he just extols upon Hezekiah. And, um, and, and then finally, in, uh, we're going to start in verse 9 uh, this evening. And... We're going to look at verses 9 through 12, and we're going to see that this is really a recap, if you will, of the... uh, And actually, remember, after verse 8 last week, we looked at the reforms uh, that Hezekiah had done, and we read, remember, in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and 30, and uh, I would even encourage you to read uh, chapters 29 through 31 of Second Chronicles. And that really kind of gives you a bigger picture of all the reforms and all the really wonderful things that Hezekiah did during his reign. Okay, it's important. We, we read through two of those chapters last week. I'm not going to read through 31 today, uh, but you can read that for yourself. It's just further um, blessing that um, Hezekiah did. But notice in verse 9, this is... Um, The author here is recapping uh, the fall of Samaria uh, from chapter 17 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Notice what it says. Now it came to pass, verse 9, in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, and this would be Shalmaneser V, who reigned from 727 to 722 B.C., king of Assyria, he came up against Samaria and besieged it. So from really verses 9 through 12, he's just recapping what had happened in the northern ten tribes, how they were taken captive. And the fourth year that is spoken of here in verse 9 is counting from the time when Hezekiah was vice-regent with his father. Because he was vice-regent with his father Ahaz from 729 to 715 B.C., and we know that this is the right date because it says, and also uh, during the seventh year of Hosea, Hosea was Israel's last king, the very last ninth dynasty of the, the northern ten tribes. And we know that his reign began in 732. So you do the math, 732 minus seven years, and you come to the same number, 725. So 725 B.C., is when the king of Assyria came up and besieged Samaria. And then verse 10, at the end of the three years, so it took three years, so between 725 to 722, there was this besieging of of Samaria. And then uh, we understand that Shalmaneser uh, began this siege in 725. And within three years, within that three-year period, um, history tells us that um, Shalmaneser V died Uh, back at home in Nineveh, so he must not have been there the whole time, but his son, Sargon II, was likely the one who actually led them from Samaria into Assyria uh, to to be captive there. And so verse 10 says, and at the end of three years, they, they took it. So in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Now, I just want to say something really quick here. You'll notice that the Bible's not so much concerned about giving you the dates. And the reason it doesn't, it can give you these time frames because there's other scholars, other records that are very clear about uh, when, when these things happen. And that's how we're able to devise uh, the actual time of everything. God doesn't need to say 725. He can just say, you know, the seventh year of Hosea. And um, we'll figure it out because there were records uh, pertaining to that. So he didn't go into great detail, and neither was it necessary, because the, the Bible is uh, not just a history book, remember. It is a, a book of redemption. It's a history book, but it's a book of redemption. 
And so verse 11, he goes on, it says, Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozen, and in the cities of the Medes, because, and here's the reason that the northern ten tribes were taken away, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but they transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. And see, that's always a bad place when you get to the, that place where you're not willing to hear and you're not willing to do. That's what you call obstinate heart, an obstinate heart. You're not willing to hear, you're not willing to do. And when a person gets in that condition, it's never good. It's never good. Pray that God always gives you a soft heart that's pliable, that God can use, and he can just water it. He can just, with his eye, he can guide you. And you're just so willingly, willingly able to be led and willingly able and willing to obey. Just to obey. I want to be obedient. I don't always make the right choice. And sometimes I make, I, I, well, I make mistakes. But I want to be obedient. And see, God knows our hearts. And if we desire that, he loves to bless us in that way. Now, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 17... Uh, verses 17 through 23. We looked at this last week, so we're not going to look at it tonight. But that, if we look at that, it is a list of sins that Israel had done that caused this judgment from Assyria to come upon them in 722. And so this, uh, these verses that we're going to look at now from verses 13 through 16 is the first of two invasions that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, would make on Judah. Yes, the first of two he would actually attack them once, and then he would attack them again. So verses 13 through 16 is the first of the two invasions. And it tells us right there in verse 13, and in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Now this is reckoning his, um, his, his, uh, his actual reign when he actually came into the kingdom by himself, no longer being regent with his father. So that's 715 B.C., so... And the 14th year of that puts this at 701 B.C. And you may be wondering, why are you giving us all these dates? Well, if you write these things down, you're going to put things in, in, in order, and you're going to see things. And as you read through the Bible, you're going to be pulling things from other areas, other prophets, and other things like that, and you're going to see the context. So having these dates can be helpful when you're putting all the pieces together. And so... Um, so Sennacherib came against Judah twice. The first invasion uh, is verses 13 through 16, and we're going to see also the second invasion, and that's going to be verses 17 through 37. But look at um, uh, verse 13 again. It says, In the 14th year uh, of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. And one of the towns, one of the major towns in Judah that he took was Lachish, which was a town that was located southwest of Jerusalem. And there is actually um, the biblical account of this conquest of Lachish by Sennacherib in 701 BC is actually recorded in the Assyrian records of King Sennacherib's campaign. In fact, it's graphically recorded in a large and elaborate bas-relief on the walls of the royal palace in Nineveh. So it, it talks about him coming in, but he never, he never was able to um, completely conquer Judah because we're going to see here tonight that uh, God intervened and, uh, and God pushed him back to Syria, where he ultimately died. So notice verse 14. So the Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me, and whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the reason he's saying this is because when he first became king, he resisted in paying the king of Assyria tribute. In other words, the king of Assyria wanted money from Hezekiah, and in doing so, king of Assyria would stay away from ransacking or going and destroying Judah. So you give me money, I, you pacify me, and I won't come and destroy you. So it's like a, a twisted friendship dues. You know, you're friends with me as long as I pay you, but as soon as I stop paying you, you're going to come after me, right? And so King Hezekiah sent to the king, and he said, I, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And this is the only thing 
written in the scripture about Hezekiah that was really negative. Everything else was stellar. And, and I love that because God knew this about uh, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was in a very deep strait here because he's being surrounded now by uh, Sennacherib and, and, he, and he's already taken m- m- many of the cities in Judah, the fortified cities. So he's thinking, we're next. And indeed, that was the case. They were next, and Hezekiah's like, you know what, what do you want? Do you want gold? Do you want a, you know, a gift card to Dunkin' Donuts? I mean, what is it you want? I'll give it to you. Do you want the keys to my Lexus or my Lexi? Because I got more than one, plural. My Lexi, my fleet of Lexi. Um, what, what is it that you want? And so he says, whatever you impose on me, I'll pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, meaning he exacted money from him, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, you and I, that may not mean like a lot, but I did the math. 300 talents is equal, equivalent to 11 tons of silver. And as of March 2nd, I did looked at the price of silver. That's about $7.3 million just in silver. And he gave him 30 talents of gold. And, that is, and one ton of gold is uh, equivalent to $59 million at $843 an ounce today. So what, how much money did he give him in total? 66.3 million smackaroos. That's a lot of money. And that's in our, in our money today. So Hezekiah, verse 15, gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord. Think of that. All the ornamentation, all the stuff that was silver and gold, he, he got it off, he stripped it off. And uh, he stripped the gold from the doors of the temple, verse 16, of the Lord, and from the pillars which Hezekiah himself, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. So here, Hezekiah finally breaks down as he sees that this formidable foe had captured all these cities, and, and certainly Jerusalem was next. And and, and by the way, Shalmaneser, this is not something that he's just doing to Hezekiah. Remember in 2 Kings, he did the same thing to Hosea, the very last king of Israel. He did the same thing with them. He told them to give them money, give them money. And when he stopped giving money, he came against them. So the same thing is happening here. So the events, as we look at verse 17 through 37, took place about 13 or 14 years after Sennacherib's first invasion that we saw in verses 13 through 16. So now, this is Sennacherib's second and final invasion before God is finally going to have, have it up to his ears with this man's pomp and pride. And it's interesting, God, think of the, 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 the patience of God. And as we get into this, notice just how the bravado that Sennacherib and, and uh, this, uh, his uh, governor, Rabshakeh, Rabshakeh, just the, the arrogance that he's going to boast against the Lord. So again, this is about 13 or 14 years after that uh, first um, campaign. And notice in verse 17, Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and when they had come up, they went and they stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Now, underline Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh. These are all Assyrian titles. You might even have it in the footnote of your Bible. It, they're titles of different uh, heads of state. And the Rabshakeh, who we're going to really be hearing from, he's really the governor, if you will. He's like the chief of staff. And so, verse 18, And when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to meet him. So um, you can see, just picture in your mind this siege that they're, they're coming against Jerusalem. And these guys are standing on the wall, and they're, and they're interfacing with this Rabshakeh. And so Rabshakeh, verse 19, says to them, Now say to Hezekiah the king, and so he's now the Rabshakeh, the governor of the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser. He comes and he, he's pounding his chest. He's probably got his leather on and he's probably got his chest out and he's looking all proud. 
Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king. Oh, you mean Jesus? No, that's not who he's thinking of. He's thinking about Shalmaneser V. He should plead the fifth, by the way, and keep his mouth shut. So Shalmaneser V, <laughs> he says to him, what confidence... Say to the great, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Does that sound like a really humble gentleman? Or does that sound like Smaug from the, the Hobbit? You're going to come against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go through his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in Jehovah our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you two thousand horses if you're able to have any to be able to put riders on them you see how he's taunting them he's boasting in his great power and the great king of assyria you come against me and we'll give you we'll even you give us some money and we'll give you two thousand horses if you can find anybody any man enough to stand and ride these horses into battle full of pride so full of pride you can almost feel what's going to happen can't you because this is an insult, not only against them, but against Jehovah God. And, and they keep poking God in the eye. And you poke God in the eye long enough, and you're going to get it. Especially if you're a pagan king or a pagan nation. Poking, 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 you're going to get smashed. Anybody who's come against Jerusalem has gotten smashed. They have. Historically, it's always happened. It doesn't mean that they haven't gone into captivity. They have. But those nations who plundered them got plundered themselves. God made sure of it. Verse 24. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up and against this land and destroy it. Do you think God says go up this land and destroy it? Do you think he said that? No, he didn't. He's going to call Babylon to do it, but he didn't call the Assyrians to do it. God called the Assyrians to come down and take his people. In the northern tribes, yes, but God didn't give them license to come in. And here he is trying to play psychological warfare. It's one thing to have bombs and airplanes and, and, and infantry and ships and, and missiles, but to play a psychological warfare, that's what he's doing here. He's playing a psychological warfare with them. <laughs> you, and so he's saying, you know, um, that the Lord, your God, Jehovah, has called me up against you. And it wasn't true. God never called them up against. He was going to call Babylon. But notice... Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So what do you think that they did? <laughs> they continued speaking in Hebrew. So these gentlemen who were on the wall are saying to us, Speak in a different dialect so we can spare these people from the worry that, of the things that you're going to say. And, uh, and it didn't work. It was worth a shot. Because it might have spared the people from panicking. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. For he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Jehovah God, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This king shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. <laughs> and notice again their tactics. The Rabshakeh, his tactics, what is it? It's fear. 
If you can, if you can play with the head of your opponent before you actually do anything, you know, the battle is half won. If you can get the morale down so low and start attacking them, attacking their, their, their heritage, attacking their whatever strength they might have in the physical, and then attacking their God... And that's exactly what they did. They boasted in the king of Assyria and his power. They belittled the Jews' heritage and their strength. They belittled the things that they put their confidence in. And unfortunately, at one point, it was Egypt. And they belittled God and his power to deliver the Jews. And again, all psychological warfare. So in verses 31 and 32, as we go on, Rabshakeh is now going to appeal to their flesh by promising them safety if they don't resist him. And when he does come and take them captive, they'll be able to go into a land of plenty like they are in now. And so he's basically going to appeal to their lesser nature and try to get them to cave in and, and loosen their morale Notice what he says in verse 31. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me and every one of you will eat from his own vine and every one of you his own fig tree and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. Notice that, like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. So in verses 33 through 35, Rabshakeh tries to cause the people to lose their confidence in God. And comparing Jehovah God to like all the other gods in the nations that Assyria had already conquered. The Rabshakeh and the king of Assyria and the pagan idolaters, or they are pagan idolaters, excuse me. And as a result, they don't believe in Jehovah. They don't believe in the God of the Jews. And the God of the Jews is the God of all creation, not just another local deity. We know him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? The God of all creation. He made it all. So they certainly don't believe that Christ, that God, that Jehovah, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But they will learn. Because in the chapter following, in verse 35, God's going to use an angel of the Lord to kill 185,000 of them in one night. Spoiler alert. So verse 33 He continues on with his boast. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the great king Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? And you can just hear him boasting and the people getting lower and lower and lower and just, you know, he's right. Hopefully the people of Judah didn't forget who their God was. There may have been some that were shaking their knees on the, on the wall or behind the wall as they could hear the voice being echoed over, the, over the, the wall in Jerusalem. Notice what it says in, in Psalm 115. The psalmist says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth, Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? And that's exactly what they're doing. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? And the psalmist replies, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses they have, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they don't walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. I love that. That was a fitting psalm for the situation they're in. O Israel, trust in the Lord your God. Who cares about the gods of Sepharvaim and Hamath and all those? You serve the king of kings, the one who spoke all things into existence. Serve and trust him. And God is going to help Hezekiah. 
And he's going to help out Jerusalem immensely, and we're going to see it in the next chapter. And I can't wait to get to it, because it's my favorite part. (laughs) So verse 35, he says, he continues on with this flapping of his mouth. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? I've got all these other kingdoms and these other towns. What difference is it? I'm going to take yours too. It's just going to be that simple. It's math. I did all that, I'm going to do that too. And one thing that God really hates is pride. We know this, pride in Psalm and Proverbs, excuse me, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And he, this man's going to fall. Proverbs 6, verse 16 says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. And do you know that Rabshakeh is guilty of every single one of these things as he is out in the field blaspheming the people and blaspheming their God? And he's even trying to pit them against one another. Don't listen to Hezekiah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's going to lead you right into the pit. But you come to me and I'll give you all the vines. You can go into a nice land of plenty like the one you're in now just come out just come out a liar verse 36 but the people held their peace and they answered him not a word for the king's commandment was do not answer him so Eliakim the son of Hilkiah who was over the household Shebna the scribe and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder they came to Hezekiah with their robes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh Now let's go right into chapter 19 and we're going to read through this with some pauses here and there and then we'll take communion together. But notice, this is where it gets really interesting. The great God is about to show up. Aslan is about ready to roar. (laughs) And I love this. Can you just see that big line if you saw the, the the Chronicles of Narnia? And the lion, Aslan, gets up on top of the rock and he sticks out his chest and he belts out a roar and everybody hears it and everybody submits. And see, when God speaks, people listen. He's got better attention span than E.F. Hutton. He, he demands attention more than E.F. Hutton. You remember E.F. Hutton? When he talks, people listen. Well, I don't care about him, but I care about God. When he speaks, we ought to listen. And he's going to speak And he's going to speak some words that are going to pierce right through the heart of the Assyrians. Notice in verse 1, and so it was. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. And that was just a sign of the Jews when they they were uh, upset or or fearful or whatever. They would tear their clothes and they would uh, put um, sackcloth on themselves. And they would sometimes cover themselves with, with, with dirt or in ashes. And so he covers himself with sackcloth and then he goes into the house of the Lord. And what a great response for what has just happened to him. What does he do? When, when all of these threats are coming against him, you know, does he, does he go and look into the back room and grab a bottle of whiskey and, and, and you know, drown his sorrows? No, what does he do? He humbles himself and he goes in before the one who can do something. He goes before God, and so it was. Verse 2, then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth. They too were humbled, and they sent them, he sent them to Isaiah the prophet, who was a contemporary of Hezekiah at this time, the son of Amos. And again, notice the humility of Hezekiah. He goes to the Lord in humility, and he also brought out, he also, excuse me, sought out um, Isaiah the prophet. And that's a really good move. What does the Bible tell us in James 4, verse 10? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and what? And he will lift you up. He will lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Notice, we don't have to lift ourselves up. Hezekiah was already feeling pretty low. He was surrounded. He didn't really know exactly what God was going to do yet. So he's feeling very low, and he's thinking, you know what? We may get our gooses cooked. This may be the end. And so he does the right thing. He humbles himself and God is going to lift him up, just like he does us. When we remove the pride from ourselves and we we stop being prideful 
and trying to work it out in our own flesh and our own ingenuity, when we fall to our knees and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm at my wit's end. I've tried everything. I've maxed out my credit card trying to fix this problem. I need you to help. I don't know what to do. You know, do that. Go to the Lord in humility. You know, a humble heart is like an irresistible thing to God. And be patient. It's irresistible to him. When you humble yourself before him, it's like you become like a magnet to him. Because a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he won't quench. Verse 3, and they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, and they said to him, so Hezekiah sends these men to Isaiah the prophet, and they said to him, Isaiah, they said, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. And in other words, we're in trouble, and is God going to help us? Isaiah, what, 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 what are you seeing? What Can you, you know... Intercede for us. What is the Lord doing? And then he goes on in verse 4. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God. Notice, he's reproaching the living God. Notice who it's all about now. It's not even about them so much. Do you hear the the difference? Hezekiah is not saying, look what they did to me. I'm the king of, of, of Jerusalem, and they blaspheme my name. No, it wasn't about him at all. Notice what he says. They've come and they have uh, reproached you, the living God. He takes himself and the nation of Israel right out of the equation. He says, Lord, this is about you now. They have blasphemed you. They've reproached the living God and will rebuke the words uh, which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer, Isaiah, for the remnant that is left. And notice, a call to prayer. Any nation that's in a strait, and we're in a strait, aren't we? I would love to see our prayer times on Tuesday nights at 7. Would you come and pray with us? More than any other time in our history, we need to be praying, folks. Our country is falling, 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 and we have to stand in the gap. There's no hope for America apart from what happens in the church. Do you understand that? It's up to us not the government. May the Lord give us a repentant heart and may he give us the heart like what it tells us in Second Chronicles 7.14. You've heard this. God says, if my people... And of course, in context, we're speaking of Israel. But I think this also applies to us, even in America today. But notice, he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, there it is again, and pray and seek my face. And what is Hezekiah doing? He's doing that very same thing. He's humbling himself. He's praying and he's seeking the face of God. And if they turn, if they turn from their wicked ways, there's our part. There is Jerusalem's part. Then I will hear. Do you understand the condition? Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Psalm 60, verse 11 says this, Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. It is. There is no hope for this country except for the church in America. And church, we have to wake up. We have to wake up. We have to get serious in our walk with with the Lord. We have to turn away from the sin. Stop playing church. And start doing what God has called us to do, and that's to go out into the highways and the byways and tell people the good news. Regardless of what party they're from, regardless of their persuasion, regardless of what they're doing, they all need to hear the good news like we heard it, right? Verse 5, so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Hezekiah, or came to Isaiah, excuse me, and Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord. So now God gives a message back to his servants to give to Hezekiah, and he says to him, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord God, Do not be afraid of the words which you've heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. 
Surely I will send a spirit upon them, and he shall hear a rumor, speaking of the king of Assyria. He's going to hear a rumor, and, and this Rabshakeh, and they are going to hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And this is literally going to come to pass in this chapter in verse 35 through 37. And so notice in verse 8. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring. And this is the rumor that he's hearing. The Rabshakeh returned and he found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. So now uh, the king of Assyria has got another skirmish going on. And the, king's, the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, saying, Look, he has come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. In other words, I've got to go deal with this, but don't think that I'm done with you. <laughs> I'm going to come back. He says, look in verse 11, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and shall you be delivered? Shall you, Jerusalem, be delivered after all that we've done to everybody else? Put in your Bibles, in all caps, with three exclamation points after it, the word yes. He is going to deliver. <laughs> and shall you be delivered? Oh, yes. He's going to deliver. God is going to deliver. He always defends his faithful remnant. Notice in verse 12, Have the gods of all the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Reseph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. Notice, and Hezekiah went up again. Notice his posture again. It's not going to the bottle. What is he doing? He's inquiring of the Lord. That's a very smart thing to do. So Hezekiah received the letter. He read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. Can you imagine? And still at this, you know, He's, 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 there's a proverb in 16, Proverbs 16, verse 3. It says, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts shall be established. The word here in, uh, in, in Proverbs, uh, commit, literally means to roll. Roll your works out to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. And isn't that what Hezekiah is doing now? He's taking this letter from Rabshakeh, and he's laying it out before the Lord. A good place to lay it out. And then Hezekiah prayed, notice, before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made heaven and earth. And see, there is a wonderful difference. You made heaven and earth. All those gods that um, uh, Shalmaneser, or I'm sorry, Sennacherib, he's talking about, the gods of Hamath and all these different gods and these different towns and their little deities. Those are just local deities. Notice what Hezekiah is saying. Lord, you're the only one. You are the only one. You made heaven and earth. Oh, my goodness. That trumps everything, doesn't it? Who cares about these little squeakly things over here making a lot of noise? you got a big, big, big God who made all things. Fear him. Trust him, right? Incline your ear, O Lord, verse 16, and hear Open your eyes, O Jehovah, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Again, removing himself out of the way. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. And it is true that they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands. They were made of wood and stone, therefore they destroyed them. And so th this is a reality. Now therefore, O Lord our God, pray and save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God, you alone. <laughs> and then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, and here it is. This is when the hammer comes. He's rolled out his letter at the, at the altar of God, and God, do you see all this? And he worships God. Do you notice that? When he laid that out, all of these 
this slander against God. He lays it out, and then he prays. He says, you are God of all. Important. He worshiped. He didn't go, God, what are we going to do? No, he, he's like, you are the one who made the very breath in these men that are speaking. You have allowed them to their very next breath. You are the God of all, and I love this. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, and this is where God starts to speak, and everybody shuts their mouth. Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Do you see now what God is doing? He's taunting Sennacherib, and he's taunting Rabshakeh. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you. She's laughing behind your back. Verse 22, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? And the answer is, against the Holy One of Israel. That's who you've done it. By your messengers you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitudes of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of seed of Lebanon. I will cut down all of its cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Does this sound familiar to you? This boasting? And I actually counted, there's five different times where God is saying that this man has boasted, I will. Where does that sound familiar? Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 14 when Lucifer said the same? Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12, what does it say? How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, here it is, I will ascend into heaven, Satan says, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And God replies, you shall be brought down to hell. <laughs> you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest pit, to the lowest part of the pit. And it's no coincidence that I think there's five statements of I wills in this Sennacherib. God goes on in verse 25. Did you hear long ago how I made it? From the ancient times that I formed it, how now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. In other words, I'm the one who allowed you to crush those cities into heaps of ruins because of their idolatry. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place. And you're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me? Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hooks in your nose and my bridle into your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Do you realize what he's saying here? This is exactly what they did when they carried the, the northern tribes, when they carried them away to Assyria. They would put hooks in their jaws and through their noses and through their lips and they'd have them on a chain gang and they would lead them and nobody's going to trip. If you trip, you're going to pull somebody's lip out. You know how sore that is after a couple of days of walking in the desert? That's how cruel they were. And you know what God is saying? I'm going to do the same thing to you. I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lip. And I'll turn you back by the way which you came. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat of the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. He's not going to come here, nor is he going to shoot an arrow here, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, says Jehovah God. 
Oh, my goodness. He just pounded him, didn't he? (laughs) A knuckle sandwich God just gave them. Punched them right between the eyes. They're wiggling on the floor. They're counting to ten. X is over his eyes. Game is almost over. I love that about God. My God is bigger than your God. Isn't Jehovah, isn't Jesus bigger than anybody else? Oh, yeah. And you know what? If we're going to boast in anything, I'm not going to boast about the military might of, of Israel. I'm not going to boast about the military. And that's a, a really one to be worried about, by the way. And I'm not going to boast about the United States armaments and their nuclear weapons and their, their artillery. I'm going to boast in God. He can make things happen on a dime that nobody could have even thought. And everyone's going, what? Oh, yeah. He does it all the time. History is littered with stuff like this. For I will defend this city, God says, to save it. Notice, for my own sake and for my my servant David's sake. Because God made David a promise that there would always be a king. And even though they were taken captive, he would bring them back into their land after 70 years. So notice verse 35, and it came to pass on a certain night, and here's, and then we'll take communion. Uh, Sarah, feel free to come on up. We'll just look at these last few verses. And it came to pass on a certain night that, here it is, the angel of the Lord, so the army is still surrounding, and God is giving this message from Isaiah to tell Rabshakeh, and he pretty much punches him right in the eyes, God does. And then, verse 35, and it came to pass on a certain night that the the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses. They were all dead. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. Now, do you notice something here? That God didn't kill Sennacherib, did he? All of his men got wiped out, but he, he allowed him to go back. And now it came to pass as he was worshiping. As he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his God, that his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, which is modern-day Turkey where Noah's Ark somewhere is landed, right? And then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Pretty interesting, isn't it? You poke God enough and he's going to roar like a lion and he's going to punch you. (laughs) Not, Not us, of course, right? We have been covered under the blood of the lamb, right? God doesn't have any delight in harming us, but he's taken the punishment out on Jesus, on his son, But back at this time, when people messed with the apple of God's eye, and you are the apple of God's eye too, first Israel, but he also sees his people, he takes care of his own. Don't you love that about God? He's a a wonderful deliverer, he's a wonderful protector, he will always take care of you, and he's looking out for us. Even right now, in our country, when we're going, what is going on? Lord, where are you? He knows. There's no need to fear. There's no need to fear we got to trust in him and love him. Amen? Amen. Um, we're going to take communion, so as Sarah leads us in a song, feel free to just come up and grab the elements. Lord, we bring before you tonight, Lord, just our own hearts. And, and Lord, we pray that, Lord, if there is anything uh, today that we have encountered, anything we said, anything we did, Lord, that we know is just not... It doesn't add up to what you've called us to do, Lord. Help us to, at this time just to... Ask for your forgiveness. It's really that simple. Lord, your promise is still true that if, you, if we confess, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. And as we take this bread and this cup, we're very aware of what these symbolize, Lord. This bread that was broken, Lord, as your body was broken, the very bread of life was broken for our behalf, Lord. And so we take it in honor and thanksgiving for what you did for us in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. And Lord, we're also mindful of your blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. Lord, the very perfect blood of the spotless Lamb of God who, whose blood was shed for all of our behalf, Lord.
Thank you for that provision, Lord, for without it, we would be hopelessly lost. And thank you, Lord, for what this represents. And Lord, as we drink it, we take it down deep into the center of us, Lord, just acknowledging the truth of it. And Lord, the reality of our oneness with you now because of this. And so we take it and we think of thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Yes, Lord, we thank you that you do, Lord, the impossible things. And Lord, just looking at even what we are looking at tonight, Lord, just the insurmountable uh, thrush around Jerusalem, Lord, seemingly no hope whatsoever on the horizon. And yet, God, you show up. You rebuke the enemy, and the enemy is defeated soundly and easily. Lord, may we never forget these kinds of things. Father, when we're surrounded on every side, when we're feeling like the, everything is closing in around us, Lord, you are the great God, and we count on you, Lord. We trust in you. Help us, Lord. And bless us today and tomorrow and this next week. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night.